You're listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. This is a chronological Bible study going chapter by chapter, discovering Christ in all of Scripture. This is Genesis chapter 17. Promises, Vows, and Covenants Did you ever make a promise you didn't keep? I did. As a child, we would promise to keep secrets, which, as any kid knows, the definition of a secret is something that is told to just one person at a time. Occasionally, we would seal the promise with a cross-my-heart-hope-to-die, which would make it more solemn, but still not unbreakable. The most serious promises we made were sealed with blood. We would prick our thumbs with a needle and smear them against the other person's thumb. This was rare. Now, as a nurse, I shudder at such a thing. Later on in life, promises were of a romantic nature. We would promise to call, to meet, to write. Some girls received promise rings, a kind of pre-engagement ring. We would talk of marriage in vague terms as a possibility, since it wasn't official. Once that proposal was spoken and the ring was on the finger, we had a promise that a wedding would soon be occurring. A vow is stronger than a promise. It's legally binding. It's solemn. It's not to be made lightly. In a wedding, it's done before God and witnesses. It should not be broken. It's a contract between two people, equal in the sight of the law. Before God and witnesses, we vow to remain faithful, to love, honor, and cherish until death separated us. The sign was the exchange of rings. We think of marriage only in terms of vows, but in Scripture, Marriage is seen as a covenant. In Malachi 2.14 it says, You ask why. It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. So if vows are more binding than promises, covenants are even more so. Covenants are contracts. In the business world, they are usually between equal parties but they don't necessarily have to be. They can be between a controlling partner and a lesser partner in a business venture, or between an employer and an employee in which both have responsibilities and obligations. A covenant can also be between a defeated country and a conquering country in which the terms of surrender and reparation payments are worked out. Covenants are also witnessed, an oath is taken, The terms are laid out, and the consequences of not carrying it out are listed. But when it comes to our relationship with God, we have all three things in play here. But it is primarily the covenant with which we will concern ourselves. So God promises us many things. Forgiveness of sins, eternal life among them. He promises to be with us and give us his Holy Spirit. Because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, We know that God will keep his promises. By raising Jesus from the dead, we see that God keeps his word. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. He is not a fallible person who breaks more promises than he keeps. He doesn't break any promises. He has sealed his promise in the blood of his son, which is more precious than our childhood blood promises. God also makes vows to us. He takes us in a marriage contract. He first wooed us and then betrothed us. He loved us with an everlasting love. He promised to be our faithful husband. He then promised that sacrificial love for his bride by dying on the cross for her. 
so that he could present her pure and spotless. One day at the consummation he will be he will present his beautiful beloved bride and there will be a marriage feast. But even more significantly, God enters into covenant with us. He has made many covenants throughout redemptive history with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. He took an oath, swearing by his own name, because there is none higher, and laying down the terms of the covenant. Our Bible is divided into two covenants, the old and the new. Testament is another word for covenant. But now we are in the new covenant, which was promised in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31, but fulfilled in the New Testament. It was initiated at the Last Supper, before Jesus sealed it in his blood the next morning. God said he would take out our heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, on which he would write his law. He has done this by regeneration because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. This new covenant was made not between equals, but between a greater and a lesser. In fact, he laid down the terms and promised to keep them because he knew we would be unable to keep them. Our sin made us fail over and over. If it had not been for God's faithfulness to his covenant, we would have no hope. He then sealed his covenants with a sign, either a rainbow or circumcision. Our possession of the Holy Spirit is our down payment, seal or proof that the rest of the covenant will also be fulfilled. It's more sure than any earthly covenant. As believers, we can rest in the assurance of these things because of the character of the one making them. He is immutable. That means he doesn't change. He doesn't lie. He makes comforting promises to us. He has vowed to love us forever as our bridegroom, and he has entered into an everlasting covenant, purchased by the blood of Christ, ratified by his resurrection from the dead, and sealed with the sign of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Our salvation is triple secure because of these things. Okay, so back to our scripture study, Genesis 17. Verses 1 through 8, ratification of the covenant with Abram and name change. So God originally appeared to him when he was 75 years old. At age 85, he became impatient with God's timing, and he and Sarai hatched a plan that resulted in the birth of Ishmael when Abram was 86. Thirteen years have passed since Ishmael was born. Abram is now 99 years old. The Lord appears to him. This time we're not told what manner this appearance takes, whether a vision, a dream, or a theophany. But regardless, God appears, and Abram is wise enough to fall on his face before him. God says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you, and will greatly increase your numbers. The motivation for Abram's faithfulness and blameless living is the character of God himself. God revealed himself as El Shaddai, the almighty, all-sufficient God. He again promises his covenant with Abram and innumerable descendants. At this point, Abram is probably thinking this will be accomplished through his son Ishmael. When Abram hears God speak, he falls on his face and God continues, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. 
for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant with you as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. So let's unpack this. First, God calls it my covenant. And this phrase is used by God nine times in Genesis. This reminds us it is set up by his initiative and it will be fulfilled because he is the only one to make sure it will happen because of his omnipotence. We should be in awe that God would condescend to enter into relationship with us. Our response should be love, obedience, and submission. He promises that in relation to this covenant, Abram will be the father of many nations. Therefore, his name is changed from Abram, meaning exalted father, to Abraham, meaning father of many nations. We will see many Hebrew names with this ah sound in them, like Elijah, Hezekiah, Jeremiah, while others have the sound of El, like Daniel, Israel, Nathaniel, etc. Then others have the sound of I, like Benaiah, Abishai, Haggai. So this brings in the names of God, Yahweh, or Jehovah in English, Elohim, and Adonai. So this name change is bracketed by the promise of descendants, so his name reflects it. He promises Abraham will be very fruitful. A progenitor of nations and kings will come from him. And this is promised again to Jacob in Genesis 35. There will be kings in all the nations that come from him, but specifically we think of the kings of Israel like David and Solomon. But for Abraham to use the name father of a multitude would be to invite mockery, since he had only one son at the age of 99. But God speaks of it so certainly, it is already in past tense. I have made you a father of many nations. So God calls this an everlasting covenant. It is everlasting because its beginnings are in eternity past and its effects are into eternity future. It is everlasting because Jesus will come from this family as a descendant of Abraham and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Then he again promises the land of Canaan in which Abraham is now living as a foreigner to his descendants. And this is associated with relationship. It's to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. So this personal relationship with God is what sets them apart from all the pagan nations that only worship idols. You can't have a personal relationship with an idol. Verses 9 through 14, the sign of circumcision. So far, God has shown what he will do to ensure this covenant. Now he tells Abraham what he must do. As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. 
including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So circumcision is the cutting away of the male foreskin. The practice, even then, was not unknown in this period of history, but now it was given new religious significance. It would signify a person's relationship to the family line of Abraham, which is why it is a practice known in many Middle Eastern countries even today. The symbolism had to do with the cutting away of sin out of the life of the believer. And it was done to this body part because it represented the seed that produced sinners. It was done in this case to adults because it was the beginning of the practice, but from then on it was to be done to male infants on the eighth day after birth. An interesting scientific fact has since come to light. It's been discovered that clotting factors in the newborn peak on the eighth day and then drop off, so this is the safest time to do the procedure. But then God, the Creator, knew that when he instituted it. It should be noted, although it's sad that it needs to be said, but we are told repeatedly that this rite is to be performed on males only. The practice of female genital mutilation, or FGM, formerly misnamed female circumcision, is mandated nowhere in Scripture. This horrendous practice is in no way similar to male circumcision, which is done young enough that the pain is forgotten and removes an unnecessary piece of skin that in no way affects sexual functioning. By contrast, FGM is often done on a young girl around the age of five without anesthetic, and it scrapes away most, if not all, of the female external genitalia, including the clitoris, preventing future sexual enjoyment and causing many health problems and medical complications. There are no health benefits. It is a practice that should be stopped and spoken against. In 1993, the UN called it a human rights violation and violence against women rather than a health issue. In a patriarchal society, only the male members of the family needed to be circumcised because they were the representatives of the family. Now, in the New Covenant, women are included as individuals. Even in the Old Testament, the spiritual implication of circumcision was explained. It represented repentance. Jeremiah 4.4 says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. And the Apostle Paul echoes this thought. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So in both the Old and New Testaments, many have made a profession of faith, but have not been in possession of faith. They may have seemed to be a believer outwardly, but were never regenerated inwardly.
So the New Testament equivalent of circumcision is not baptism, or else they would have said so at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, when the apostles were asked if Gentile believers should be circumcised. If baptism replaced circumcision as the sign of the new covenant, all they had to say was, no, they don't need to be circumcised as long as they've been baptized, because it's the same thing. But they didn't say that, because, like in the Old Testament, circumcision is about repentance and putting away sin. The sign of the new covenant may be the baptism of the Holy Spirit, who indwells all believers, male and female, and follows repentance. That's one view. Another view is that it, the Lord's Supper or communion is the sign of the new covenant because it was instituted when Jesus said he was making a new covenant on the night before he was crucified. Whichever one it is, in both scenarios, a true believer has repented, put away sin, is indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and partakes of the Lord's Supper. So that's another question we can ask about when we get to heaven. Further stipulations regarding circumcision are that it is to continue throughout their generations. In that culture where they had servants who had no rights, they would be circumcised because they were part of that family. It also applied to any others born into the family. To fail to circumcise males was to break the covenant and brought the death penalty. But we know that later many were not circumcised and the death penalty was not enforced. So circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. The Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic covenant. To reject the sign was punishable by death. So why were the punishments for some laws seemingly lax compared to the death penalty for, say, gathering sticks on the Sabbath? It's because of what the sign represented. An example is a wedding ring. It represents our commitments, vows, promises, and love. If we take it off and throw it at our spouse's feet, that is a powerful image of how we feel about the marriage. Likewise, when an Israelite broke the Sabbath or refused to circumcise their sons, they were rejecting the God who stood behind the covenant. Verses 15-22 through 22, Sarai's name changed, promised son, blessing on Ishmael. So Abram's name was changed because there was going to be another major life event. So now God also changed Sarai's name. Even though it was a patriarchal society, we see the importance of this woman as the matriarch of the Jewish people. God changes her name to Sarah. Sarai meant prince, my princess, but now the limiting pronoun was removed and she was called Sarah, which meant princess, reflecting her status as the mother of nations. God said, I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. This is a significant change. So far, the promise of descendants had been given to Abram alone, which made Sarai's suggestion to have children by Hagar a reasonable option. But God is now promising a child to Abraham through his wife. This will happen because of God's blessing. This one child will become many nations and kings, similar to the promise God gave to Abraham. This causes Abraham to fall on his face again and laugh, wondering to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? 
Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? We had been told he was 99, so he was anticipating the year it took to carry a child. At this point, the most amazing aspect of this was that Sarah should conceive because of her age, her barrenness up to this point, and the fact that she was menopausal. Abraham laughed with joy. After learning about the fall and the promised seed, now he would have a child of promise. Would this child be the deliverer, or was he still to come? Abraham wonders what this means for his other son, Ishmael. This also betrays how unlikely he thought Sarah's pregnancy was. So he asks for a blessing on his behalf. If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Even though he only thought it, God heard his thoughts. It should always be our concern to pray for our children, that they might be kept by God. God doesn't reject Israel, Ishmael outright, but shows the primacy of the child of promise over him. Ishmael is promised common blessings, but Isaac is promised covenant blessings. He again, patiently but firmly, rejects Abraham's alternative. God says, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. The key is, yes, but. This is the promise of a son, a name for him, an everlasting covenant and descendants. He is named Isaac, which means laughter, to remind Abraham of his response to the news. It is an everlasting covenant because of Jesus Christ and all who will believe on him. Then God addresses Abraham's concerns about Ishmael. He says, and as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of twelve rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. God hasn't rejected Ishmael completely. God would bless him and multiply him into twelve nations. These are listed in Genesis 25. Then we have another but. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. Ishmael will be blessed, but Isaac is the son of promise, through whom God will establish his covenant. He also tells Abraham when it will happen. He had never told him that in the other times he reaffirmed the covenant. Abraham obeys right away. Matthew Henry says, Sincere obedience makes no delay. He circumcises all males in his house, and someone circumcises him. This happens when Abraham is 99 years old and Ishmael was 13 years old. Circumcised bodies are of no use without circumcised hearts. Ishmael had this right done to him. He had his father's love and influence, yet he was called a wild donkey of a man. We cannot be content with the outward signs of religion. The Apostle Paul tells us the order is important. Abraham was given the sign of circumcision after God had already declared him righteous. So his obedience to be circumcised could not be the basis of his justification. It was based on his faith in the promises of God, not on his own works. Paul deals with this extensively in Romans chapter 4. Therefore he is the father of the, un of the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Romans 4.11 
Scarlet threads. So what scarlet threads or hints of Jesus Christ or an application to the gospel do we find in this chapter? God spoke to Abraham personally, but infrequently. We are more privileged because we have God's word, which can speak to us whenever we open it, and we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Abram and Sarai were renamed Abraham and Sarah. These would be perpetual reminders of God's promise. In heaven, we will receive a new name. God again reaffirms his promise to give the land of Canaan to Abraham. In the new covenant, the promise expands to land and then to an inheritance of the earth. Abraham saw beyond this to the heavenly Canaan, Abraham fell on his face twice in this chapter. Do we show reverence when we communicate with God in prayer? God promises to have a relationship with his people. He does this again in the new covenant. God called it an everlasting covenant. Jesus would descend from Abraham. Through him, as Abraham's seed, all peoples will be blessed. Paul speaks to this in Romans 4. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, So shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant. This represents repentance. In the new covenant, when we repent, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. This is the sign or proof that we are truly members of the new covenant community. Abraham knew that the Deliverer would be related to the son he was promised. Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You've been listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and comment. Continue listening for Genesis chapter 18. May God bless the study of his word.